Recovery Elevator, episode 178. You know, and I, I had something in common with all of them. I really heard my story told by everybody that shared that day. And that was like my, oh shit, like I do belong here. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, it's been 3.8 years since my last drink. On today's podcast, we have Kai. She's from Vancouver. She's been sober for 298 days at the time of the recording, and she mentions during her interview that alcohol allowed her to connect with others, but it was a false sense of connection. This Sunday, July 22nd, a special thing is happening in Littleton, Colorado, just south of Denver. That would be the best band in the entire world. Third Eye Blind is playing. I can't back that up with facts. That's just a strongly held opinion. If you'd like to join us at this concert, you're more than welcome to. In fact, we're going to be eating lunch or an early dinner at a restaurant near the concert venue beforehand. Email paul at recoveryelevator.com if you'd like to join for more information. Also, around March or April in 2017, I received an email from a listener who was on the staff of the Third Eye Blind 20-year reunion tour saying, Hey, Paul, I'm glad you're a Third Eye Blind fan. If you'd ever like to see Third Eye Blind live, shoot me an email, let me know. I can get you tickets, a backstage pass. We can even get you on stage and sing probably Jumper with the band. I'm kidding. That last part she didn't promise. But hey, if you're listening... I searched my emails forever. I couldn't find that email. So if you're listening and the offer still stands, paul at recoveryelevator.com. I've already got my ticket purchased, but uh, backstage passes would be pretty sweet. Okay, let's get started. Is knowledge alone enough to quit drinking? So today I'd like to cover what the speaker said at your high school graduation and see if this applies to getting sober. Knowledge is power, and with this knowledge, you can accomplish anything. Thank you, Mr. Richardson. Very deep insight. So is this knowledge alone enough to quit drinking? Are we able to successfully quit drinking by devouring articles, blogs, podcasts, and books about getting sober and staying sober? Hmm. Well, great question. Let's get some knowledge and try this out. Here we go. Turns out alcohol doesn't relax you. It actually slows down your mental faculties. Unlike food, alcohol is absorbed directly through the stomach lining, which gives you an intense glucose or sugar rush when you drink. This is no bueno. Alcohol is estimated to be the third largest modifiable risk factor for cancer. When you drink enough alcohol, over time, you will change the way your brain responds to alcohol, and this change can be permanent. Death by alcohol consumption has now surpassed AIDS as the number one killer for men aged 15 to 49. Oh, bring it on, dangerous facts about alcohol. Bring it on, here we go. Alcohol kills around 90,000 Americans each year and over 3 million people worldwide. 31% of rock stars' deaths are related to drugs and alcohol. The drunkest city in the world is Fargo, North Dakota. I'm just kidding. I don't know if it's the world, but it is the drunkest city in the United States of America. And if you've seen the movie Fargo, it's going to give you good indication of why. Alexander the Great once held a drinking contest among his soldiers, and when it was over, 42 soldiers had died. Okay, let's summarize. A, alcohol is shit, and B, it's f***ing dangerous. Yeah, line that one up, right? So there we have some facts about how dangerous alcohol can be, but that can be somewhat of a broad swath, and it's easy for us to say, I don't fit under that umbrella. So let's look at some personal self-knowledge in relation with alcohol. You might find yourself in a situation where you know these statements to be true, and we'll see if they can help you quit drinking or not. You could say, if I drink again, 
My girlfriend, Melissa, is going to leave me. I know somebody out there has a girlfriend, Melissa. If I drink again, there's a good chance I won't make it to work on time and I'll probably lose my job. If I drink again, go ahead and cue intense self-loathing and shame. If I drink again, I will be taking one more step backward away from the goals I want to achieve in life. If I drink again, I'll be letting myself down. If I drink again, alcohol will lead me into a state of pure levitating bliss. Wait, wait, I got that way wrong. If I drink again, alcohol will ruin my life. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. And then we can get some grim information from medical professionals saying, if you drink again, your liver will fail. If I get another DUI, I won't be able to drive for a year or I will be serving a mandatory prison sentence. So we covered some information showing that alcohol is shit and that it's dangerous. And then we went a step further and made it personal. Alcohol is not serving you in your personal life with your direction in life any good. Is this enough to quit drinking? Well, if it was, this podcast wouldn't exist. I hate to break it to you, just binging on the podcast, going back to 000, all the way up to episode 170, it's not enough. Is it a waste of time? Absolutely not. And we'll get to that more in a second. So does self-knowledge help anybody quit drinking and staying sober? Well, yes, it does help one group of people. That would be the normal drinker. Do we have any normal drinkers listening to the podcast right now? Hang on a second. I know I have a sound effect of crickets chirping. Let me just find it. Um, I know it's in this folder. Can't find it, but you get the point. So for a period of time, self-knowledge can keep us sober, and this would be mostly based on fear. Wait a second. You're telling me after binge drinking, the alcohol is digested and turned into THIQ, which is then deposited into my brain, which is the reason why it's becoming harder and harder to quit drinking? Holy shit, this is frightening. Fear can get us sober, but it won't keep us sober, and here's why. Self-knowledge is no match for the unconscious mind. Studies show the unconscious mind reacts one-third of a second before the conscious mind, and eventually that part of the brain will win. Yep, I said win. Recently acquired knowledge through reading books, blogs, podcasts, etc. is no match for decades-long neural pathways we have developed while drinking. The ism, the incredible short memory of the disease, will soon start chirping at us in our own voice, and it usually makes a compelling case. Surely it can't be that bad, Tom. We took a solid month off. You said 31% of rock stars' deaths are related to drugs and alcohol? I can't even play the C chord on the piano. I'm good. I got this. Uh Uh-oh. Watch out for those three words. At this time of the podcast episode, we're going to see what the big book has to say about it. On page 39, here we go. The actual or potential alcoholic will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. Cool. Glad we covered that. And while doing the research for this episode, I came up with a math equation. Self-knowledge alone equals willpower equals white knuckling equals dry drunk plus insert amount of time equals drunk again. I don't recommend trying to prove that equation false in real life. On January 1st, 2010, on day one of my 2.5 years of sobriety, first thing I did, I went to Barnes and Noble and started reading. The first book I pulled off the shelf, I actually lucked out on this one, was a fantastic read. It was Beyond the Influence by Catherine Ketchum. I did what the majority of us do when we become aware that we might have a drinking problem. I started acquiring knowledge about the disease. Many of us go to Dr. Google, and that's how several of you guys found this podcast. Now, there are some incredible books, which I've mentioned on this podcast, which are great informational reads about this disease. This Naked Mind by Annie Grace and Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Control Drinking come to mind first. But these books, they won't help keep us sober. They do a great job of providing stable footing for a long journey ahead. And this isn't a knock on those books at all. 
I'm saying we need more than simply knowledge to keep us sober. In fact, none of the recovery books we read, including the big book, will do us any good if we don't apply that knowledge into action. So if you're in the acquiring knowledge phase of your journey, don't let this episode get you down. In fact, nice job. You're doing great. Seriously, whether you know it or not, your journey has already started. This is how the majority of people get sober. And like Mr. Richardson said in my high school graduation, knowledge is power. But I'm going to add a little twist to that. Knowledge is power if we use it or if we take action. So one drawback about the knowledge phase of this journey is the acquisition of information is usually done alone. However, once we stumble across the line, we cannot do this alone, and then we take action, wow, that's when tremendous progress is made. So now what? Learning about this disease is a form of action, but then we need to take further action by implementing what we learn. Let's talk about continuing education. We can't stop learning and implementing what we have learned. Once we start coasting, then bring on the narrative, oh hey, I think I can have just one. It'll be different this time. I think I got this. So we live in a culture of answers. We always want to know why. We always want to tell ourselves, okay, that makes sense, or no, that doesn't make sense. There's so many pathways to sobriety, and some of them are hard to explain. If you've had a spiritual awakening, maybe hold off on going to Dr. Google and discovering what that was all about. Just let it be and believe the healing is happening. I hope you guys enjoyed this topic as much as I enjoyed researching it and putting it together. And before we hear from Kai, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe RE meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Kai, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, awesome to be chatting with you this morning, Kai. Kai, let's get right into this. Yeah, how long have you been sober? As of today, I've been sober 298 days since August 21st, 2017. Nice job. Been a, it's been a long 10 months. Well, good. We're going to get all into that, the good, the bad, the happy, the sad, all of it. I cannot wait to hear more about your journey, Kai. And, um, and listeners, you know, sometimes I reach out to people and I, I, you know, I, I see their posts. I hear about them through friends of friends. I reach out and say, hey, I want to get you on the podcast. And then randomly, sometimes I just fire back a question. So I get a bunch of emails, which is awesome. And I got an email from you telling you, hey, I'm listening to the podcast. I've been sober for this amount of time. And I just threw it back. I was like, hey, let's do an interview. You agreed. And here we are. I'm excited. All right. Me too. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So Kai, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, where do you live, and what do you do for fun? Yeah, I'm from uh, Richmond, BC originally, which is a little suburb outside of Vancouver. I currently have three jobs, so I work a lot. I work for family services, and I also have my Joe job at a burger grill, which is great. Sweet. And then I also am an ESL teacher as well. And I'm 28 years old. 
And uh, for fun, I do crossword puzzles. I like cooking. I go to lots of comedy shows, movies, stuff like that. Who's your favorite comedian? Uh, well, I have to say my best friend, Alana Turner. <laughs> cool. 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 I was hoping it was going to be Alanis Morissette. That's not no, even, not even comedian. No, I don't think she's very funny, though. <laughs> no, she's not. No, no. No. <laughs> uh -uh. Jagged Little Pill is pretty good. Yeah. I also John Mulaney, if we're going for the big names. He's he's quite the quite the stand-up comedian. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 0 for 2 on those. <laughs> I don't even know any <laughs> of those names. I love stand-up comedy, though. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is a good time. And it's good to go to that kind of stuff in sobriety as well, right? Because it's a place where I can go and laugh. And if I'm not drinking, nobody really notices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think laughter and humor is so important to recovery. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. And so, Kai, give us a little background about yourself in terms of, of drinking. You know, when you first started, what was it like? And then, and then walk us into the time frame when maybe you started to realize it wasn't the best thing for you. Yeah, drinking's pretty much always been a part of my life. Probably started really drinking when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And I, I don't know, it was one of those things where once I started, it was like, oh, this is it. This is exactly what, what I need and what I want all the time. And actually, and, can you explain more about that, the this is it feeling? Because I've heard a lot yeah. of people on this podcast say it, including myself. But take a couple moments and just say, you know, explain what, wow, this is it. What was that like for you? I think, you know, that feeling that a lot of people describe as always not feeling like they fit in or not quite being a part of something. But, you know, it's that connection that that alcohol would give me. So when I'm going out with people, it's like all of a sudden I have friends and all of a sudden people want to hang out with me because I can get the alcohol. And when I'm drinking, like I can do whatever I feel like doing. Mm -hmm. Kind would of you that conscious brain. With this a connection or maybe a false sense of connection? Oh, definitely a false sense of connection. And I've, you know, and it took me a really long time to, to understand that it was a false sense of connection. And really, I don't think I started to realize it until I got sober. Because some of those relationships now, I'm like, oh, it wasn't actually real. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's even weird now, like I've been sober for almost 10 months. But my drinking career, like I always said, my longest relationship was with alcohol. And, you know, from 12 to 28, like I've got a lot more learning to do in sobriety. So it's easy kind of to look at the drinking now, but to, but to compare it can be difficult. Well, what do you mean by that? To compare it can, can be difficult? Well, just because the amount of time that I've spent drinking, it's like my whole adult life. And the amount of time that I've been sober is oh, like okay. 10 gotcha. months. So I'm like a little baby gotcha. in comparison. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our emotions are, we regulate them differently without alcohol, sometimes successfully, sometimes very unsuccessfully. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I get you loud and clear and it's always changing. It's not like you quit drinking and then this is your new baseline state. Thank goodness. Yeah. There's always yeah. <laughs> room for improvement. Yeah. So let's back it up a bit. Kai, when did you first realize that alcohol perhaps, you know, might not fit that well with you? Well, my dad was an alcoholic growing up. He was actually in the program uh, for a few years while I was younger, which I didn't realize until I was in the program. But from the time that he and my mom separated, it was a very boozy household. My sister, when she was like 12, could tell the difference between a Pinot Noir and a Shiraz. And she was like, yeah, I don't know, maybe 11 <laughs> at the time. That's kind of um, funny. Is, so is, your, is your dad, is he still drinking or is he sober? He is still drinking now. Uh, he's of the belief that you can sober up and then get control of your drinking back again. But knowing him really well, I think on the outside, he's got it all. But on the inside, he's not, not totally happy and fulfilled. So mm. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of a, a soft spot there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And then let's talk about you for a moment here. 
yeah, yeah. talk to us about uh, yeah your journey. Yeah, so I was um, drinking like all through high school, of course, like a lot of people. And I think my drinking really changed after I had a kind of traumatic incident happen to me when I was in my early 20s. And from that point on, it just got really vicious. Like the blackout episodes got really, really bad. And that kind of split personality thing that people talk about was really present for me. My alter ego was called Lucy. And when Lucy was out, it was just like, what the? Fuck. Oh, Lucy. Lucy. Oh, Lucy. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like from the Peanuts character, she always takes the football away before Charlie Brown kicks it. Damn that it. was, Lucy. <laughs> yeah. And Lucy, I, I got to ask what a lot of listeners are also wondering right now is can you tell us what that traumatic event was that, that perhaps led to the switch in your drinking? Well, it, it was a sexual assault that happened. But, you know, like there, I definitely had a problem with drinking before that. I think that's just what kind of pushed pushed it over the edge for me because now mm-hmm. I was really drinking to to cause destruction, I think. And what age was that? Sorry. Uh, about 21 years old. Okay. And yeah. thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry you hear about that. No, that's okay. You know, it's, I, I think it's important to talk about that stuff. I really, I couldn't talk about it for a long time, but that's the case for like one in three women. So I think it's an unimportant thing. Unfortunately, I heard that before. It's, it's staggering. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was definitely something that, that influenced my drinking quite a bit. There was no doubt in my mind that I had like, you know, I was unrealistically in love with alcohol before that happened. Mm-hmm. But after that, it definitely kind of changed tones, I guess. And then I moved to Vietnam for three years. And uh, like Vietnam, that, Texas or Vietnam, the country, Vietnam, the country. Okay, I was living in I Hanoi, thought. Vietnam. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's a Paris, Texas. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> I'm pretty sure there is. Yeah, I don't, I've never heard of a Vietnam, Texas. So let's go. Vietnam. No, <laughs> wow, what a cool opportunity. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was working in the restaurant industry at the time, and um, a boyfriend who I was with then, him and I both kind of came from similar backgrounds and similar drinking styles, and things were just getting a little out of hand for us at home, so we decided to up and move across the country, or sorry, across the globe, I should say, Mm -hmm. and uh, I started teaching English over there, and it was awesome at first, but it, uh, you know, the alcoholism always catches up. The geographical moves didn't solve it for me, at least. Yeah, I know a thing or two about that. And why do you think it kind of ramped up in in Vietnam? Well, for one, the amount of disposable income I had was like out of this world. The pay is really, really quite good compared to the cost of living for foreigner teachers. Mm -hmm. So it was like all of a sudden I could have everything that I wanted. But all of that being said, like I did you know, run myself into debt by the end because I'd found a new drug of choice that was not as cheap as the 25 cent beers. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And then, and then when do you think the, the shift continued till the point where like it's, it's, it's time to make efforts, make attempts to quit drinking? Yeah. You know, I didn't really have that desire to quit drinking. I came back, uh, what was supposed to be on a visit to Canada to come see my family. And when I was here, uh, my sister was turning 21 and was going to Vegas with everyone. So I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to go back to my job. I'm going to stay here and keep the party going and go to Vegas. And so I did and then decided I was going to stay in Canada. But my drinking had gotten so necessary. Like I woke up and I had to have a drink mm-hmm. and I couldn't get anything done. Like I couldn't get my life rolling again. And I've always kind of struggled with a bit of depression, anxiety, all of that mental health stuff that I think is really common for a lot of alcoholics. And it just basically all came to a head. I was like drinking morning, afternoon, and night. I was isolating myself. I had no money. I had no job. I like I couldn't 
couldn't get myself to do anything. And so I actually tried to kill myself, ended up in the psych ward of the hospital. And that's what I think, like, when I think of my bottom, that's kind of what I think of. Even though I did drink after I got out of the hospital, they told me to go to AA. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, life without alcohol? Impossible. (laughs) You guys are crazy. (laughs) But yeah, sure, I'll go check out a meeting. Yeah. And when was that? That was the weekend just before the 21st. So that was kind of, you know, mid-August. Okay, that so was that going was on. last year. And and thanks for, for sharing about your suicide attempt. I also had a failed suicide attempt in, in August. Uh, yeah, oh, no actually, way. August 2014. And we got two things in common. It didn't work. No kidding. Thank goodness. Yeah. And, and I also drank after that attempt as well. Hmm. Um, but what was it like right before that? I mean, that sounds like a rock bottom moment for you, at least something mm-hmm. that was allowed you to see things in a different fashion. And it was for me as well. But what was that mind frame like before that? Because because I know before my failed suicide attempt, I was using the brain to try to think myself out of this equation. And that eventually led me to that failed suicide attempt. It, you, I've said this before is you can't think your way out of alcoholism or out of your drinking problem. It's, it's one of those things right. that's, you know, the brain is a powerful tool, but once the ego gets involved in negative patterns of thinking, it's, it's nearly impossible. What was that moment like before when you decided, well, leaving this planet is the best option? You know, I think I was really, I think I had felt stuck for so long and so empty for so long. My life had gotten so chaotic. And even being in Vietnam, like I had this great job and, you know, had my friends, but I was really unhappy and unfulfilled inside. And I feel like I'd been running around searching for something to make me feel good for, you know, for my entire adult life. And I think when I just kind of got stuck back in Canada with nothing going on around me and nothing to distract myself anymore, it was like, fuck, this is really it. Like, why am I here? And the other part of it, too, was, you know, it was right before my 27th birthday. And I'd always had this idea that I was supposed to be a part of the 27 Club. I'd never pictured myself getting old. I didn't like anybody (laughs) that was, you know, past 30. And I was like, you know, I'm supposed to be you know, I've done my bit now on this earth and I'm supposed to be out of here now because there's nothing else for me. Mm-hmm. So that was a part of it as well, too, which now when I think back on it, I'm like, oh, my God, that was just a year ago. I sound so juvenile. But, man, my perspective has changed so greatly since then. Yeah. And that's the that's the cape. I mean, we can do that. We have the profound ability to change. And I, I resonate a lot with what you said, because I had two light bulb, not light bulb moments, but two. I remember standing in my room. Um, I was sober, but I was prescribed benzos to get a couple mm. of days of sobriety. And I just had this realization and just said, fuck, I cannot yeah. beat this. I've thought of everything. I've tried every rule. I cannot beat this. And then, you know, I, then I did the, the, the suicide attempt. And then about six weeks later, I had the same realization where I said, fuck, I cannot beat this on my own. And it was just like, that's when it all started. That's when it all started. You know, I'd burned the ships previously, and I knew at that moment that I had to bring the people that I had burned the ships with. That means like I told everybody about my drinking problem on yeah. you know, on my team. And so one of them was like, fuck, I'm totally beat. I'm totally done. And the second one was like, fuck, I can't do this alone. I'm done. I quit. And that was like my profound my profound change, and, and you've changed the course of my life forever. And it sounds like you had the same thing. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, I actually said after I'd gotten out of – the hospital and then I got um, taken up to Prince George where my dad's girlfriend was at the time because I was on suicide watch still so my brother came with me and he was there to help me 
basically be like my support person, make sure that I wasn't bringing anything into the bathrooms mm -hmm. with me and to, and I was allowed to drink because my dad's like, obviously that's no problem. Drinking's not the problem, but I was on antidepressants now as well too, which don't mix great with the alcohol. So I was really trying to control my drinking and I did successfully control my drinking. You know, I got drunk like everybody else, but just the process of counting drinks for me and having to not drink as much as I wanted to drink made me feel more fucking crazy than anything. So I actually went to a meeting after that and that's when I got sober because I was like, if this is what controlled drinking is like, fuck this, I'm going to go nuts. <laughs> it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It is it's, absolutely exhausting. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's not a, it's not a sustainable plan. So what was, what was the thinking before you went to the first meeting? You know, I really wanted it not to work. I definitely, you know, I was talking to my, I have a, lots of outside help as well too. And I was talking to my psychiatrist, like my depression had gotten so bad even after getting out of the hospital that I was in the spot where I couldn't get out of bed for most days. And so she said to me, you know, just choose one thing a day, go out and do your one thing, blah, 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 blah. And I'm one of those people who likes to get their gold stars for stuff so that I can then slack off after. Mm -hmm. So I decided I'd go to an AA meeting for the one thing that week and then I wouldn't have to do anything else for the next few days. And I got to my first meeting and I was really kind of blown away, actually. I was like, what the fuck? Because it, sorry for swearing. You're <laughs> I, good. You're good. <laughs> hey, wait, what's the date on this? Was this like August 20th? This was August 20th. Yeah. Okay. Or sorry. No, this was August 23rd. August 23rd was my first meeting. It was a Wednesday because the Monday I stayed in bed all day, Tuesday, bed all day, Wednesday. Okay, I'm going to a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I showed up there and it was definitely a whole bunch of old people sitting around in a room, but I had never really seen, I don't know, like happy old people before. I was like, <laughs> what is this? Like, and, you know, and I, I had something in common with all of them. I really heard my story told by everybody that shared that day. And that was like my, oh shit, like I do belong here and maybe it isn't going to be miserable. Kai, that's a big um, indicator that you were ready to quit drinking. It's, it's a common theme that I hear when people walk into the rooms, they say, wow, I heard my story. I connected with everybody. I was able mm -hmm. to see myself and everything that was said. That means you're ready to quit drinking. My first AA meeting, I walked out of the meeting and said, wow, I'm not an alcoholic. I have nothing in common with all those people. Um, you know, I had to go, you know, go out again for, for a couple of years. I mean, and then you said another thing, Kai, it says you wanted it to not work. And that's a... I want, I want to get your take on it, but that's, that's a, that's a real concept. It's where it's kind of like the misery loves company and not mm -hmm. so much like you hanging out with another person. It's internally like we, yeah. we've created this construct in our mind our, our ego has created our life and, and even moving into a new direction, like, like a Kai 2.0, a Paul 2.0, <laughs> yeah. our minds will grasp for the old way of life. It's really strange, but it's, a, it's, it's a real concept. Yeah. Talk to me more about that for you. Yeah, no, I think you totally nailed it. That's exactly how I would describe it. Like it is the ego just kind of working in the opposite end, but it's, you know, oh man, I don't know. It's still, it's still so active in my life today, the way that that comes up, like the mental health stuff has been a really big uh, challenge and hurdle, but you know, it does get better every time. It's just the brain telling me that, that I don't know that it's not supposed, that I'm not supposed to be here, you know, that nobody wants me to be here, that I shouldn't be here. Um, but the more that I actually, you know, kind of work the program and do the steps, the quieter and quieter that voice gets. Mm. So, you know, that's kind of the the process for me now. It's like that part of me has kind of lived its life. And I was definitely ready to give up the bottle. There's, I'd gone to a few meetings before this one, 
for friends that had sobered up or people that were like, hey, why don't you come check out a meeting with me? And I'm like, uh, sure, you want me to come to a meeting? Why not? You know, I don't care showing up drunk because I didn't think they were trying to get me in the door. And, you know, I didn't really pay attention. I didn't listen. It was like, this isn't for me. And there was a few times before in my drinking uh, where I thought, fuck, like maybe I need to go to AA and I'd reach out to somebody to take me to a meeting and mm. I'd wind up drunk at the bar instead. Yeah. So there was a few times before that, you know, I'd thought that I'd had a problem with alcohol and that maybe that's where I should go because I'd had a couple of friends that had sobered up and were in recovery. But I didn't make it. And, you know, I think that's because I really wasn't ready to quit drinking. I didn't want to quit drinking. And this time when I went in, my thinking, my mindset was more like, you know, if I go in, try what they're, you know, suggesting to me for whatever two weeks, I can still go out and kill myself after and drink myself to death. Like, that's not that option doesn't go away. So Mm -hmm. I might as well try what they're suggesting with, you know, everything that I've got because I have nothing else anyways. And if it doesn't work, I can still, you know, off myself by the end of the day. That was really like what I went in thinking. Yeah, that's a good strategy. And I used to tell myself that before too. Not, not, well, I mean, that too is like, yeah, if this doesn't work, I could do that. But it's like, I would trick myself, like I'm drinking tomorrow or like I'm going to drink yes. after the AA meeting, but I got to go to the AA meeting. And then after the meeting, you know, my mindset has shifted. But, uh, but Kai, you, you kind of skimmed over a huge impetus for drinking. And you talked about the voice inside your head and how, it's much quieter. The voice inside your head only lives in the past and only lives in the future. It does not live in the now. So if I'm hearing you correctly, if you're saying that voice has been quieted, has been mollified, it is no longer as loud, it's not chirping as loud, and that's the voice inside of our head. That's our mind. And we are not our mind. We are who, you know, we are not the voice inside of our head. We are who hears it. So what I'm hearing you say is you are more in the presence because that chirping mind, it does not exist in the present. And, and, and listeners, you can try it. Just focus on something intensely, not in the past, not in the future, but right now. Just stare at something. It's called mindfulness. And that voice, it's not there because it doesn't live in the present. So it sounds like you're living life more in the present. Is that right? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember the first time my uh, my counselor said to me, you know, you're not your mind, right? And I was like just blown away. I'm like, what do you mean I'm not my mind? And I had really grown up thinking that that voice in my head was who I was, like my entire being. And it's just since I've sobered up really and started, you know, practicing things like daily meditation and and being in the present moment that I'm like, oh, it's actually not that, it's not the only part of me. It's a part of me, but it's not the defining part and it's not the biggest part. So the rest of me now is trying to, to grow the other aspects of myself. Wow. And it's such an amazing concept that was foreign to me as well. And I first learned about it reading The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Fantastic book. I'm reading The The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle right now. And it, it's all about, yeah, you are not the voice inside your head. You are the one that hears it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty profound stuff. And it is so profound. And I, and you know, as a, as an alcoholic and someone in recovery, like it changed, it changed the game for me when I really heard and understood that because it shattered everything that I had thought about myself previously. Yeah. And, and it, it also comments on anxiety. I know it's a lot, it's a big sort for mine and a lot of listeners is anxiety is really only existing for future events. You know, d- mm-hmm. Despite after a binge and there's some chemical reasons why I experience anxiety right after a, a binge, but it, it just comments on how important the present moment is. I mean, if you were to ask a dog or a tree or, or, or a gecko, what time it is, they're going to say, what, what time it is. It's, it's now. And yeah. like, no, no, no. Like, you know, what, what, Mr. Gecko, like what, what's the date and time? Like, uh, it's now like the concept mm-hmm. of time to really only human beings is 
is, uh, is what matters. But it, if we can just live our life in the now, that's where I found where sobriety is located in the now for me. Okay. We went a little deep there. <laughs> no, no, for sure. And you know, that was, that was me as well too. I think at about two or three months, I was actually up in Whistler and went to a meeting while I was there. And that was just what I was experiencing the whole time. It's like being in the present moment. And it's, you know, it's a much happier life living in the present than living anywhere else. Yeah. And, and, and walk us through the first couple of days, the first weeks, the first month of sobriety. How was it and how'd you do it? Oh, my God. It was it was hard. It was really, really hard. I think, you know, especially the first week, the only thing that was going on in my head was like, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. But you want to drink, don't drink, don't drink. It was just like that <laughs> constant tape. And, you know, I, I don't know if I knew how hard it was going to be or if I kind of like made myself think that I had maybe more control over my drinking than I thought it, than I actually did, but it was really tough, but I just went to a lot of meetings. I would go to at least two a day and I just kind of dove into the work in, in AA with doing the steps and reading the literature and all that. So I just really tried to keep myself busy and focused and definitely made those dates. Okay. I'm not going to drink right now but I'll drink tomorrow at like two o'clock PM after the noon meeting. So I would set those things up with myself. And then that kind of helped me get through that first week or two. Kai, I got a question. If it was mm -hmm. so hard, why didn't you quit? If what was so hard? Getting sober. Oh, so getting hard. sober was so hard. Yeah. You know, I think I, I think I really needed, I think I really knew that I needed to get sober. I couldn't go on the way that I was going on anymore. Like that part of me had really ran its, ran its course in life. Like there was nothing left on the drinking side for me. So it was either this or death. And I think that that's why I was able to really commit to doing, you know, what was suggested and, and reading and working the steps and everything right off the bat. Do you know who Eddie Izzard is? I've heard the name. Yeah. If I get this right, he's a comedian mm -hmm. and he, he does a piece. Uh, I think I, if, if I get this wrong, listeners, I'm sorry. He does a piece about like, you know, choices in life. And uh, if only they were like choices of like, would you like chocolate cake or death? Oh, okay. I think I'll take the chocolate cake. That sounds a lot <laughs> yeah. better. And I kind of got to the same point too, Kai. It was like, well, it's life or death. And, and, and my heart had always been telling me, it had been telling me for a long time, like, look, alcohol is killing you, Paul. And I was finally mm -hmm. able to listen. It sounds like you kind of said the same thing. Your heart and, and your body, your soul was telling you it's time to move forward in life without alcohol. Mm hmm. And, you know, and it was something that had kind of run through my head quite a bit in the past, too. Like, I think when I was 16 or 17 years old, like I knew I drank different from everybody else. And it was really like my my companion throughout my entire life. There was so many times that I was like, oh, my God, what did I how did I do this? I have to quit drinking. And, you know, I'd make it like two or three days. I think three days was my longest time I had not had a drink before coming into uh, into recovery. So. It was a pretty big, a pretty big change for me, but a, but a necessary one because it was that, or you know, my alcoholic life was wasn't getting me anywhere anymore. Yeah, and if if it gets hard, you can always tell yourself the alcoholic life is just waiting for you. You're it's waiting for me. We yeah, still have and I that do that choice. a lot. Yeah, absolutely. It's a you know, like the doors in recovery. There are two ways. You can always go back out. Mm -hmm. There's nobody stopping you from doing that. So I just like my life a lot better today. Yeah, so great to hear. And Kai, talk to me about cravings. Have you had cravings in the past 298 days? And what do you do when they come? Yeah, so the first, I would say the first one or two months was kind of like a constant craving for me. They were, it was really tough. But what I did start doing, which my uh, sponsor told me to do, he said, just ask for help in the morning to stay sober and say thanks at the end of the night. And I'm definitely one of those people who reject the, the God idea, but 
I said I would do whatever he told me to do, so I did. And that's kind of when the, you know, the obsession was gone for me. But I still get I still get cravings in sobriety now, just not as strong and for not as long, I guess. <laughs> less strong and less long. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, there's sometimes... a progression, a downward progression in those cravings, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. At least for me, it has been that way. I did have one really close call at about nine months where my fuck it mode just like totally switched on and I was fully ready to drink. Instead of going to the bar, I ended up at my brother's house who's been really supportive of me through all of this. And obviously he wouldn't let me drink, but I was on his floor, like just begging, begging, begging for booze. Like I was, I wanted to, to throw it all in. And, uh, and I didn't, which was amazing. Wow. I'm really glad that I didn't. Wow. But it was a fucking scary moment. So you were on the ground saying, yeah. brother, Hermano, I need a drink. Yeah. Like, please let me drink. Please let me drink. And in my dad's house, which is where my brother lives, like it's, it's full of booze, right? I had gone in there the day before and like counted all of the, the wine bottles in the fridge and sure. like, there's no, no shortage of it. Uh -huh. So I just kind of showed up there and I was like, okay, hey, let me, let me drink. Like it's, I'm just going to drink. It's, and he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> wow. um, and he kind of talked me off the cliff there. And I ended up locking myself inside that night. Cause I knew if I was out at all, I would, uh, I would probably pick up. Yeah. I didn't trust myself not to do it. So Kai, I just did a podcast. Not sure if you heard it, but it's called burn the ships. And you had, you obviously had a conversation with your brother or you brought your brother on board your recovery team months in advance. I'm guessing, you know, when the suicide attempt happened, um, yeah. but our close family members, they have to know what's going on because if we just had like a casual passing conversation with our brother, with our siblings, and then we get to that moment, we're on the floor begging. They might be like, eh, okay, all right, here, here you go. Here's a, here's a drink, but wow, it's, and then you locked yourself in the room. It's sometimes in sobriety. Yeah. You got to like pull out all stops and just remove yourself from any temptation. So good on you. Nice yeah. job. Thank you. Yeah. It was a huge thing for, I think for me to get through. And honestly, I haven't even had, I haven't had much of anything since that happened. It almost feels like that last big final blow for my alcoholic brain, really trying to, to get it, to get it through my head. But, um, yeah, I mean, fucking scary. And I said to, I said to everyone after it had kind of calmed down a bit, that, you know, if I ever start thinking down the line that like, you know, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, just remind me of the time that I was like crying, sobbing, begging for booze on the floor. Cause I don't think normal drinkers do that. <laughs> and there's a thing called starvation. And when we stop feeding our old habits, they, they're not happy. They're not happy. And I think you're probably right at that nine month moment. That was like the final, like, look, we are done. We are done mm -hmm. feeding you. And, and hopefully it continues in forward in a positive direction. Nice, nice job. I'm happy for you. This is so cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It was kind of a, a really scary moment. I, I went, uh, wasn't feeling so great for about a week or so after, but I'm definitely, definitely taking it as a victory now. Cause I'm still, still counting days. So there you go. And Kai, how are you going to get day 299, day 300? What's your plan moving forward? You know, I think the more simple I keep things, the better. And uh, it, most of the time, I just kind of start off with meditation in the morning. And I still ask for help to stay sober and say thanks at the end of the night. I'm really active in AA still. I go to lots of meetings. Yeah, you know, it's just kind of like doing doing the things that are working for me and doing the things that make me feel good and happy and fulfilled so that I don't feel like I'm missing out on something or that I need to fill that empty void with alcohol. It's like it's full already. I don't need it. It's full already. I don't need it. I love it. I love it. And and it, some listeners have been to AA meetings. Some listeners haven't. What do you like about AA? And what's your take on the 12-step program? 
Well, you know, like I hate the God aspect of it and I still kind of identify as an agnostic, but I think that the bones of the 12 step program are really helpful if you can just kind of remove the parts that are offensive to you, which is kind of what I did. And for me, it's more of a spiritual thing than a religious thing. And I could always kind of get down with the meditation and and living a little little bit more of a spiritual life. And I think it works because it keeps me focused on recovery. If I'm going to a meeting every day, I'm reminding myself daily that I'm an alcoholic, that I'm not the only person in the world who feels like this, and that it does get better. And by just showing up to a meeting every day and reminding myself of that, you know, I've got both feet in the program of recovery, and I can kind of go about go about what I need to do for the day. So that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of what I like about it. In 2010, I thought religion and spirituality were kind of one of the same thing. And where I'm at right now, they're completely different in my spirituality. Is that like that's the path I'm going? I love what you said. Yeah. And, and Kai, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What was your worst memory from drinking, Kai? Oh my God, there's so many worst memories from drinking. One that comes to mind is when I showed up to my job in Vietnam, which I was working with kids after a three or four day bender. And I was so messed up and I thought that my boyfriend had beat me up. But so I started telling my colleagues that he had beat me up. But I realized later on after putting the pieces together that I had actually beat him up. So that was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking? I think my oh shit moment was that weekend where I was trying to uh, to drink on pace with my brother and to limit the amount of drinks. It was fucking awful. It was the worst thing that I'd ever done in my life was limit that. So I think I was mm. like, okay, if I can't control it, then I'm going to have to give it up completely. That's kind of the same thing. You're, you're starving that internal addict in your brain and it's painful. It's, it's painful. so painful. Yeah. And, and Kai, what's your favorite resource in recovery? My favorite resource is, you know, I do love the AA meetings. I think that's been the most helpful thing for me since I've come in, but I also love uh, podcasts and I have a lot of outside help from psychologists, psychiatrists, drug and addiction counselors, all that stuff. And that's been really important for me because of the mental health stuff as well, too. So it's not just AA. There's a whole whole other world of stuff out there, too. Yeah. What are besides this podcast? Because that's how we connected. I know you've heard a couple mm-hmm. episodes of this. But what are some other podcasts, recovery podcasts or any podcast in general that you find helpful to your recovery? Well, I use the Joe and Charlie Big Book Study. That's on the podcast as well now, too. That one's really good. There's one called it's like the two wolves. I can't remember. What the title? One, the one who, the one you feed. That's what it's called. That's a good one as well too. I like that one for a kind of a more academic approach. But I usually listen to Recovery Elevator at least one episode a day, just because it's it kind of feels like an AA meeting on a podcast, and I think that's really cool. Yeah. Well. Well. Thanks for listening, Kai. Thanks for making it. Yeah. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received, Kai? I think the best re- advice I received, or certainly what helps me the most at the beginning and what did now and what does now is just don't drink today under any and all conditions. And, you know, that keeps it simple for me. I always like to overcomplicate things, but when I'm in a moment where my craving is really bad, it's, you know, I'm just not going to drink today under any and all conditions, but I'll drink tomorrow at 11 a.m. if I want. And then, you know, kind of carry on from there. There you go. No matter what, I'm not drinking today. And sometimes I got to say, no matter what, I'm not drinking this hour. I'm not drinking this minute. Minute. Yeah. And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? 
it's just just try it because if you don't like it you can go back out you can always get a return on your pain and misery and it's going to be waiting for you there if you want it life without alcohol is so much more fulfilling to not have to rely on a substance to make me feel okay about myself so you know nothing to lose by trying it and before we depart kai give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic gift line Uh, You might be an alcoholic if you realize that all of your social media posts are related to booze. (laughs) Those uh, Facebook memories have been haunting me lately. (laughs) I was just going to go there. You might might be an alcoholic if every Facebook memory for like the next seven years of your life, yeah, is is you just getting shit-faced with a fat, puffy face. Yep. Yeah, that's what it looks like. It's a good reminder. Mm -hmm. It's good good sobriety fuel, actually. It really is. It is, yeah. Yeah, and now I'm trying to switch gears a little bit, and maybe we'll get into some sober posts. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Time will solve that problem if Mm -hmm. we both stay sober. That's right. That's the plan. Kai, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I really love the podcast, and I'm so glad that you asked me to share on it. Thank you. I'd like to say congratulations to Jennifer D with 51 days of sobriety. Nice job. She also emailed me a fantastic, you might be an alcoholic gift line. You might be an alcoholic gift. Your refreshment of choice when walking on the treadmill is not water, but a cold, icy malt beverage. Man, talk about earning your drinks. If you've got a, you might be an alcoholic gift line, email me at paul at recoveryelevator.com. Hey guys, I've got good news. This moment right now. You're currently listening to a podcast right now. So this moment is the only moment that matters. You might be saying to yourself, well, Paul, I'm driving to work where I have a very stressful deadline awaiting me, but hang on just a second. You're not at work yet. You're currently investing in yourself. In this very moment, I just want you to be. Stop, 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 stop. Stop looking back. Let the past die. It's not going to serve us any good. Okay, we can actually refer to the past to make better informed decisions for the future. But let the past die. It's no longer with us and it's not serving a purpose at this very moment. Okay, stop again. Stop again. We just went in the future. We just went way far in the future. But that moment isn't now. I want you to focus the rest of your day on being in the now Because that is the most important moment of all time is right now. The key to sobriety, the key to liberation is located right now. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.